Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting among us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. My name is Michael West. Uh, My wife Linda and I have been members here for a good deal of time since the early 80s. It's great to see some longtime friends and uh, make some new friends. Our call to worship this morning is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to care what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Many people ask, what holds you all together? If you're here in one room, you have roots in Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, uh, humanism, earth-based traditions, uh, more that I'm not even mentioning, and you all call yourselves Unitarian Universalists, what is at the center? And... Usually, I say, one of the things that's at the center is our mission, which we wrote as a congregation. We wrote it on our wall, and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. A reading from Howard Thurman. In the quietness of this place, surrounded by the all-pervading presence of the holy, My heart whispers, keep fresh before me the moments of my high resolve, that in good times or in tempests, I may not forget that to which my life is committed. Keep fresh before me the moments of my high resolve. Let us now breathe together. We breathe into that space in our hearts where we are who we are. We breathe down into the place of stillness in our spirit, a place where we can speak to God as we understand God, or listen to the wisdom that is within us, or just follow our breath. In all of these ways, we are strengthened. Our aim is to be still enough, strong enough, clear and courageous enough to open our hearts to all the joy and the suffering of the world. We hold in our hearts those who are ill, those who are fearful, those who are worried about family members, 
We hold in our hearts those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disasters, especially the people of the Philippines as they try to recover. The people of the Central African Republic as they are in the middle of war. There's so much suffering. And there is only so much we can do. But we must do that much. And we ask for the wisdom to know whether today it is our time to alleviate the suffering that is before us or add to the joy or do both. You are now invited to light candles of joy, remembrance, sorrow. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist loving-kindness prayer or metta-meditation. We say this through three times. I'll say a line and you say it after me should you choose to. The first time through, we say this for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time we say this for someone we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time is a spiritual exercise. We say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. One of the reasons that I wear this robe is because it's a teaching robe from the Protestant Christian tradition that is the tradition that I have roots in um, before I came into Unitarian Universalism. I was a Presbyterian minister and was studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so uh, I was trained as a theologian and a Bible scholar. And I hardly ever talk about the Bible because... Uh, I have very complicated feelings about the Bible, and I know many of you do too. I brought one with me today. Um, Just seeing it can give some people the heebie-jeebies, and other people go, oh, I had one like that. Um, (laughs) Sometimes both. Some people had one with a zipper on it. And uh, some people, you know, appreciate and love many passages in it that have provided inspiration and comfort Some people, they have passages that have made them feel guilty or angry or squashed. And um, many people have had the Bible used against them almost like a club to beat them into submission because they weren't 
sweet enough or strong enough or because they asked too many questions or because they were too gay or um, any number of reasons why somebody might uh, take out scriptures and beat you about the head and shoulders with them. So those uh, contribute to our having complicated feelings about the Bible. Some people grew up Unitarian Universalist or grew up Episcopalian and really didn't bother with the Bible that much. Um, And some people grew up in traditions where you bothered with the Bible a lot. That's one of the traditions I grew up in. Um, We used to be able to read nothing on Sabbath, which is what we call Sunday. It was an ethnic Scottish denomination called Associate Reformed Presbyterian. We could eat, we could nap, we could go to church, we could read the Bible. That was it. And I mean it. We, um, we saw other kids on their way to the lake in the summer. Uh, we said, Mom, those kids get to go to the lake? And she would say, Honey, they're Catholics. <laughs> so I grew up wanting to be a Catholic. So I don't want to waste my training as a Bible scholar by never talking about it. So I want to be able to talk about it and bring a Unitarian Universalist mind to the Jewish and Christian scriptures like I would if I were talking about the Buddhist scriptures or the Hindu scriptures, which I also do sometimes. And I want you to try to stick with me about it because I promise you that if I talk about these scriptures, no one's ever going to say you shouldn't be gay and no one's ever going to say you're going to hell. So just with those two things out of the way, I think we can relax a little bit. This book has shaped history and culture. It is quoted in a lot of literature. So it behooves us to know some of the Stories. It's been the catalyst for the establishment of hospitals and schools. It's also been the catalyst for wars and hateful behavior. It's been used to support slavery and slaughter. But as thinking people, we owe it to ourselves to come to it with a, a fearless mind and with an open heart. And I will try to do that. Um, if you do, well, I'm going to try to do that, whether you do or not, but <laughs> not really, I'm not really counting on anything from you. So don't worry about it. Just relax. <laughs> so the first question is, how do we get it? How do we get the Bible? How did it come into being? Well, first of all, it's not an it, it's a them. How do we get them? Because in most, uh, books that we call the Bible, we have the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, and then we have the Christian scriptures. They're called the Testaments by the Christians because Testament is the word for a promise made among groups of people. So it's like two covenants, the Jewish covenant, the Christian covenant. That's how the Christians look at it. Of course, if you grew up Jewish, you just had the Bible and you didn't have the Christian scriptures added to it. If you grew up Mormon, you had the Jewish scriptures, Christian scriptures, and the Book of Mormon. If you grew up Baha'i, you had Jewish scriptures, uh, Christian scriptures, and then the Baha'i scriptures. If you grew up a Muslim, you had the Jewish scriptures, the Christian scriptures, and the Quran. All of those are Abrahamic traditions, tracing their line back to Father Abraham, who was the father of the Jews. So you have this family of Abrahamic religions that are supposed to be reading these 
scriptures. They're supposed to be holding these scriptures as holy. Um, the Unitarian Universalists started out as an Abrahamic religion, but um, is pretty far out on the fringe now um, of the Abrahamic faiths. I would say it's one of our sources. Not I would say, but the Unitarian Universalists say it's one of our sources. We draw from many sources, but this Bible, look, if it weren't a real Bible, it wouldn't flop like this, Um, that this is one of our sources. Okay. So in the time before there was a Bible, there were scrolls. And each synagogue had a couple of scrolls. You might have Hosea and Deuteronomy, or you might have Isaiah and Genesis. You had you grew up just hearing the scripture out of whatever scroll your synagogue had um, available. And nobody uh, really saw the whole list of scriptures. In fact, there wasn't even a list of scriptures until some rabbis in the first century, early on, like the year 10, um, a group of rabbis got together to make a list of the scrolls that were going to be part of the Bible, the Jewish scripture. If you have a Roman Catholic Bible, um, you have all of those books in what it calls the Old Testament. If you have a Protestant Bible, you're light a few books because the reformers in the 16th century took a few out. Um, Those scrolls were in Hebrew, but in the year 70, the Romans came and they just tore down the temple and they scattered the Jews to all the four corners of the earth and nobody spoke Hebrew anymore as a living common language. And so... Hebrew, when the state of Israel was formed in 1948, Hebrew had to be resuscitated as a common language. But before that, nobody would just speak it to go on the street and, you know, find a shop to buy bread. You would speak something else. And so you had to be, you had to be specially trained in order to read the scripture in Hebrew. What most people did was they read the Greek translation called the Septuagint, and that was used until a Latin translation was made, but it wasn't, the Latin wasn't made, translated from the Hebrew, it was translated from the Greek. So you had a translation of a translation. And then you had the first English translation in 1380, which was a translation of the Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Still with me? You're nodding. That's good. The New Testament, that's what the Christians call it, the Christian scriptures, made up of four gospels, some letters uh, from Paul and other people, and then it ends with the book of Revelation, Revelation of John, which is an apocalypse, means what happens at the end of the world. The first three gospels, there are four gospels, by the way, because um, when in the early church they they were deciding on the list of Christian scriptures... Someone stood up and said, well, I think there should be four, because there were so many floating around. There were Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary. Many of you have read Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels, where she has many of these Gospels for you to read. Um, The church fathers, and they were all fathers, um, not literal biological fathers, they were all men, is what I'm trying to say. Um, They met, and, and one of them stood up and said, I think we should have four, because... There are four winds and four directions, and so we should have four 
Gospels. And everybody was like, all right, that sounds good. And they picked out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from amongst all the Gospels that were floating around. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. That just comes from the Greek, seeing from the same angle, synoptic. So you see from the same angle, because most of those stories are the same in those first three Gospels. Um, Biblical scholars think that there were common sources that these three writers, whoever they were, um, took from these common sources. And there are names for all the sources, and biblical scholars try to figure out which is from which source and all. But you don't need to go into that level of detail right now. Just know that the first three tell the same stories almost. They have slight variations. But the fourth one is the Gospel of John, and that is a completely different kettle of fish. John um, speaks about Jesus as if he were a god. The others don't as much. Um, John starts with this poem that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and not anything was, and everything was made through him, and not anything was made that wasn't made through him. And it's this, it's this long poem that is lifted almost verbatim from ancient scriptures about the wisdom of God. That is a song to the wisdom of God, which has the name Sophia. Um, Sophia is the wisdom of God, and it's a poem to Sophia that begins the Gospel of John. Now, he didn't do that by accident. He did that on purpose in order to let people know that he thought that this man, Jesus, was part of God, in fact, the wisdom of God, in fact, Sophia. See what I'm saying? So it's fun to learn about these things and to learn what the writers were trying to say as they wrote in their languages original languages. So um, when you're a Presbyterian minister, you go to seminary and you have to learn Hebrew and Greek so that you can see the original scriptures and ostensibly, theoretically, read them and translate them for yourself. Of course, my Greek left me probably in 1986. Um, It was a long time ago that my Greek left me, but I know where to find it. And There are translations that are called linear translations where you can open up the book and there's the Greek right here and there's a literal English translation right under every Greek word is the English word. They don't care about syntax. They don't try to make it make sense. So it's fascinating to read. Here are the actual words that were used. You try to make sense out of it. Um, There were many different books of Revelation as well, but they picked the one by the man named John, the Revelation of John. Um, So if you want to be erudite at your next cocktail party, you you say, you know, it's not called Revelations. It's called Revelation. And any preacher you see on TV that calls it Revelations is undereducated, and you shouldn't listen to anything they say. (laughs) So in the Christian scriptures, when the writers use the word scriptures... When they say, the scriptures say, da-da-da, or you should treat the scriptures in this way, they're talking about the Jewish scriptures, right? Because when they were writing in the early church, they would have been amazed to think that their letters were going to be considered scripture. They would have maybe been appalled. I don't know. But when they use the word scriptures, 
They're talking about the Jewish scriptures. Not, they're not talking about what they're writing right then. They didn't go, hmm, let's write some scriptures. No. They were just writing letters. Paul was writing letters. He was trying to keep the Christians that he had converted in all different parts of the Roman Empire, try to keep them from doing crazy stuff. Um, there were people just... If you were to read church history, it would curl your hair. Because people were always trying to say, oh, um, so if we sin, that means God gives us grace. And grace is good, right? So more grace would be better than less grace. So let's sin more, and then we'll get more grace. And then uh, here's how I would like to sin, you know. And you can imagine what happened. And Paul is just like, no, writing letters. No, you don't sin for more grace. No, no, no. That's not how we do it. And so he, he was not trying to write scripture. He was just trying to keep people between the lines of, um, of good judgment. Um, no one thought about making an accepted list of Christian writings as if there were going to be scripture, until the year 140 when this guy named Marcion made a list. And he took part of the Gospel of Luke and he took uh, 10 of the letters of Paul and said, these are the Christian scriptures. And everybody went, oh no, that's not right. And so they had a meeting and they worked for weeks and they came up with the list that looks pretty much like what we have today. So what did people do with it? They took all the writings and put them together. If you wanted another Bible, someone had to write it out by hand. So they were very, very expensive. Did most people know how to read? No. Did even the clergy know how to read? Not most of the clergy. So the people learned the Bible stories through the stained glass windows. And there were troops of actors that would travel around and would act out the stories. Whatever story that they knew. And so the people were pretty abysmally ignorant, which left the church pretty completely in charge until the invention of the printing press. And then in the 1500s, the printing press was invented, invented, and people began to learn to read so that they could read their Bibles. And when they actually read the actual Bible, they went nuts with ideas about what it all meant. And with thinking, they never told us about this, or they taught us this all the time, but it's not in there anywhere. One guy, Michael Servetus, one of our forebears, looked in the whole Bible, read it cover to cover. There's no Trinity in there at all. And so he wrote a pamphlet called On the Errors of the Trinity, which caused quite a stir and eventually cost him his life in Geneva. John Calvin burned him at the stake, the father of the Presbyterians. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Burned the father of the Unitarian Universalists. And and yet, so there was a lot of bad behavior like that. Um, As people fought, can you imagine people fighting about what the Bible means? Unfortunately, yes, they're still doing it. But the hold of the Roman Catholic Church over the minds of the people was shaken 
for a time and the Reformation started of people trying to reform the Catholic Church. They didn't want to start the Protestant Church. They were just the protesters that started the Protestant Church. And it um, ended up being two different branches of Christianity, but it didn't start out to mean that. Now, um, I'm going to skip that part. Okay, let's talk about how you use the Bible now. From the beginning, there have been people who believed, I'm going to make a continuum here, who believed over here that the Bible was verbally inspired by God. In other words, God whispered every word of the Bible to the people who wrote it, and there are no mistakes in it. And those people take the Bible literally, and it causes them problems because there are some internal contradictions. There are uh, places, there are two different creation stories in Genesis, for example. Um, There's a place in Matthew where it has a genealogy, and it says these are the 14 generations of Jesus, and there are only 13. And um, there are, you know, and this happens, and it's possible that they understood the counting of generations differently. I don't know. And to me, it doesn't matter. But to these people, it matters a lot. Because they're taking it literally because they want to beat you over the head and shoulders with what they think it means so that you will sit down and shut up and do what they want you to do. And many, many lives have been affected by this type of use of the Bible, which is untenable because it wasn't meant to be used that way. And there are... It was put together in a time when people had an idea of metaphor and when people had an idea of history being kind of flexible in that you wrote a history in order to justify your own – wait a minute, we still do this – in order to justify your own political uh, stance where you would say, you know, our God gave us this land, so you guys need to move – Um, because our God says, if you don't move, we have to kill you or give you blankets filled with smallpox or we have many instances of people saying, our God told us we have to do this and you need to get out of our way. I'm going to try not to get started on the Texas legislature. This pause is me telling my mind, come back, go this way. So over here are the verbal inspiration, biblical inerrancy people. And really there are not too many of those left, I don't think. I live in a bubble though, so I don't know. Um, In the middle are most most, uh, American Christians who would say the gist of the Bible is from God, but its details are not. And so it's okay to do the things that the Bible says to don't do, um, as long as you're just kind of kind and loving. And um, these are the people that many of us came from. 
Then there are the people over here who say the Bible is metaphor and dream and political uh, writing, and we should read it in order to be informed about those people's view of the world, and we should read it for the poetry, and we should read it for the inspiration, and we can also read the Buddhist scriptures, and we also read the Bhagavad Gita, and we also read the poetry of Mary Oliver and Bob Dylan, and we also get inspiration in many different places, sometimes from a nonverbal view of the Grand Canyon or our backyard or the water coming out of the tap in our kitchen, because the locus of inspiration is here, not out there. It doesn't have to have inspiration in it as a holy book. It just, you have inspiration in you because you have a spark of the divine in you and you are connected to everything. And the locus, not only of inspiration, but of authority for these people, we are over here, is in us. I have authority in me to say, this makes sense to me and this does not make sense. And if I feel that your scripture violates my sense of humanity or decency or compassion, I can say no. And you can say, but the Bible tells us that homosexuals should be killed. And you can say, yes, I know it does, and I don't care. Because that is messed up according to my sense of truth. And I have the divine in me, and I can say my sense of truth and my community backs me up. Sometimes if I have a sense of truth that my community goes, mm, no, 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 I really don't think that's true. I don't think the government is beaming things into your head. <laughs> then you can go, oh, okay. So that rings the bell of truth for me, but my community says, no, that means you're ill and you need this medication. I go, okay. So... If you are going to read it, it behooves you to know what the author was trying to say. And how do you know that? Well, you learn about the context of the time. You learn about the language in which it, in which it was written. You learn about the difficulties of translation. There's a literal translation of the Hebrew scriptures where they just put dot, 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 where they don't know what it really means, and they're not certain. And many, many passages, cherished passages, are, they say, if the Lord dot, 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 then you must dot, 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 dot. <laughs> so it's kind of amazing how much people jump up and down on this book when it really doesn't hold them up. It wasn't meant to do that. You learn the cultural context. For example, the Christmas story, I'll just tell you quickly, and I've told you this before. The Christmas story, the translators say, um, Jesus and his family came to Bethlehem and they knocked on the inn and there was no room at the inn. They slept in the manger outside. That is not what happened. How do you know what happened? Well, you look at Palestinian culture. This is where it happened. You look at that word inn. There's no room in the inn. What's that? What? Did they have hotels? Yeah, they did. But there was a whole different word for hotels than the inn. The inn translates guest room. 
And so Jesus and his family come to Bethlehem. Nobody came to Bethlehem without family there for the tax uh, counting. He was coming to his family. There was family there. If you are a family, it's like this in many families even now. If you're a family and you have a, a parent or a cousin coming from out of town and they stay in a hotel, shame on you. They should stay at your house. Or there's a big deal about it. I have family that likes to stay at a hotel because they're allergic to cats. That's okay. You know, but you have to say, no, you are welcome in my house. And there would be such extended family that there would be 15 houses at which this family would have been welcome. So they came to family, Palestinian family. Here's what the house looked like. Big room, platform in the middle of the room. There's an area of the platform that was called the inn, the guest room. Down on the floor were the mangers because all the animals came in at night. You don't want to leave your animals out there. The coyotes could get them. The thieves could steal. You bring your animals in, keeps the house warm. They munch while you have dinner or while you sleep or whatever. I don't know. I'm from the suburbs. I only have had cats and dogs. When do they eat? I don't know. But so there was no room in the inn. So we was put in the manger. It was like this far away from the inn. He came in surrounded by family, but it doesn't matter. It's a great story. There was no room in the inn. You talk about the homeless on Christmas Eve. You want to give everybody a place. You make room in your heart for the little baby Jesus. It's fine. That story is what it is. That's the European story. But the actual biblical story is something quite different, and we learn about it as scholars learn more. It's fun to learn, even when it kind of messes up your Christmas pageant. And so you learn what the author was trying to say. You learn what it meant at the time. You learn the context. And there are other places where the cultural context, I have examples, but, you know, we've got to go. (laughs) So the upshot of it all is the Bible is a book filled with truth and meaning, as many other books are. Your life is also a scripture because we believe as Unitarian Universalists that revelation is not closed. It's not closed within the book, within the pages of a book. It's open and it's ongoing. And so your story is as much scripture as the story of Abraham. Your, the, your neighbor's story is as much scripture as the story of Rebecca. So you learn how the divine is, how the earth is, how you are, what ethics is, what gets you in trouble, what makes you happy. You learn these things by exploration and conversation and reading of many things and trying things out. And this is all just as holy as any holy book. So whatever inspires you, whatever makes your life blossom, The rabbis say, if you are sitting at a window and you see God pass by, go sit at that window again. Whatever inspires you, do more of it. Now, your Bible scholar minister is going to start a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We're going to talk about the commandments with a Unitarian Universalist mind, and I think you'll find it interesting um, and 
unusual. So don't stay away from church just because I'm talking about the Bible now. Is all I'm saying. I don't like to be here by myself. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.